for me in its simplest form it is that my brain allows me to do the things that i want to do at the level that i want to do them and that it keeps doing that how your brain performs in a in a cognitive function test may be completely irrelevant to the things that you actually want your brain to do every day and be good at and i'm actually a big fan of subjective data because what we think actively drives our physiology and actively drives our biochemistry so if you don't so say if you expect to not feel good because of something you will not feel good as a result it's not all in your head it's actually driving like responses throughout the entire body on average brain function peaks in each individual right around the time that they finish formal education and the brain finishes developing which is usually in the late teens or early 20s after that it's just down, downhill i mean at a population level on average i don't believe that needs to be the case the real question is how do we change that trajectory such that the slope is as shallow as as possible because in reality you want to get to death with your brain still being capable of doing all the things that you want to do, right? Dear listeners, this show is brought to you by Freeletics. Building a fitness routine took my life to a new level. Energy, confidence, health, feeling good about my body, staying young and agile. Most of us find it enormously difficult to build such a routine. The motivation is lacking, the workouts feel bad, the plan doesn't adapt, the success doesn't materialize. But it is possible to be healthy, fit, and enjoy your life. Because I certainly did not want to be held hostage to a fitness routine or feel that I am somehow missing out on life just to be fit. For those willing to invest a few minutes of their day to develop a determined lifelong workout routine. Freeletics offers a simple lifestyle, personalized workout plans, and data-driven insights to maximize your likelihood of success while having fun. Start now at freeletics.com. Also, this show is sponsored by Stadium. The scientifically proven benefits of Training with weights are indisputable. For the major physiological systems in your body, such as muscle size, strength, athletic performance, functional capacity, also for the increase in bone density and the improvements in cardiovascular, cognitive, and psychological health. Working out with weights is almost a magic bullet. And now you can have all of these benefits at home. Stadium offers you high quality, stylish weight training equipment that you will love to have lying around your place. Get it at stadium.com. Thank you for supporting the show and checking out our sponsors. And now let's start with the conversation. Welcome to This One Life. Today on the show, Dr. Thomas Wood. Tommy says about himself, he's a neuroscientist, performance coach, and a light-level professional nerd. He received a biochemistry degree from the University of Cambridge, a medical degree from the University of Oxford, 
and a PhD in physiology and neuroscience from the University of Oslo. He currently works as an assistant professor of pediatrics and neuroscience at the University of Washington, where his lab focuses on brain health across the lifespan. He has published dozens of scientific papers, lectured all over the world about brain health, metabolism, physical activity, and human performance, and spent more than a decade working as a performance consultant to professional athletes in multiple sports, including several Olympians and world champions. Tommy, great to have you on the show. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. How did you choose your area of focus? What sparked your passion? I, I don't think that I really chose anything, to be honest. Um, I imagine that you have several conversations with people where they're, where they end up is just this random kind of journey of serendipity almost. I mean, maybe so, like some people have a, a plan and they execute it, but that certainly wasn't me. Um, <clears throat> I initially, as a kid, wasn't particularly in, interested in health, sports, performance, anything like that. I was mainly interested in eating as many cookies as I could and watching a lot of TV. Um, and then towards my sort of late teens, I got interested in going to the gym and training and all, all that kind of stuff. And that was around the time then that I went to university. Uh, I studied biochemistry, um, although I spent a lot more time rowing than I spent doing biochemistry. I was I probably trained 20 hours a week. Um, I was captain of my college boat club at Cambridge and, you know, that was, that was, that took most of my, most of my efforts. Um, and then I was going to do a master's degree in, in biochemistry. I had a place to do a master's degree again, to stay at Cambridge and do a master's. But a friend of mine said, oh, I think I'm going to apply to medical school, um, like a graduate entry me uh, medical school in in the UK. And I was like, Oh, yeah, that sounds interesting. Maybe I'll do that. So I did that. And she actually went and became a lawyer. She she never went to medical school. Um, but so that that started my medical journey. And I continued to be very interested in in sports performance. So I, I became head coach of the medical school boat club at Oxford, and was uh, doing a lot of training myself looking after athletes trying to figure out you know how can I get my athletes to perform at their best, despite, you know, heavy workloads and all these other things that they've got going on. Um, and so this kind of started this divergence of, of two different parts of my work. So I then was working as a junior doctor in London. Um, and so that kind of consumed everything that I did for a couple of years, because there's basically no time to do anything else. But after that, I got offered, um, place to do a PhD at the University of Oslo in a lab that I'd done some work in as an undergraduate, then in Bristol in the UK and in the lab, the professor moved to the University of Oslo. She asked if I wanted to do a PhD. And so there I'm like working now in basic neuroscience, trying to understand brain injury and ways to treat it. And then I also have more time to really get into my interests in uh, health and performance. So I start a little blog, start a little podcast. Um, and the academic path continues. So I finished my PhD. I come over to the, to the U S, um, start uh, a postdoc and then eventually, uh, become uh, a professor again in 
uh, basic neuroscience uh, in pediatrics. And then <clears throat> along that entire journey of you know five or 10 years, I also am part of a startup company. Uh, we coach uh, athletes who are trying to perform at their best for long periods of time, do a whole bunch of stuff around blood tests and lifestyle and that kind of thing. Um, and then eventually, which is where we are now, uh, those two worlds kind of collide. And I figure out that, hey, what's important for sports performance, what's important for general health is also important for brain development, is also important for long-term cognitive function. And these things that I've been doing in different arenas actually kind of make sense. They fit into one big thing about how we can make our brains uh, perform, first develop well, and then perform optimally uh, long-term. And so now, more and more, I kind of bring those two ideas together. So in the lab, I study ways, again, to treat brain injury, and that's in, in babies uh, or uh, in traumatic brain injury, like concussions. Um, and then at the same time, you know, try and do uh, things like this podcast or write books about just like, how do we take those lessons from elite performers from the lab and translate that to people who just want their brains to work better for for as long as possible and, and, and hopefully prevent things like Alzheimer's disease and dementia. Um, but each of those steps were just kind of like random, you know, my friend saying, Hey, do you want to, I'm going to go to med, I'm going to apply to med school. I'm like, yeah, okay. That sounds interesting. And then somebody else saying, Hey, do you want to do a PhD? And I'm like, Oh yeah, that sounds interesting. Um, so it's really just lots of, lots of interesting conversations and twists and turns that, that got me to where I am today. It, it seems that you're in a great place in life because on the one hand, you are on a mission that uh, really does something or aspires to do something really good for, for, the, for the people and, you know, potentially for really large amounts of people. At the same time, you seem to be really enjoying that, that, that mission. Uh, mm. And you said that, hey, I was more or less stumbling into into these things. <laughs> and, I, and, and you are right. I, I did hear that already. Uh, quite a few times where people said, you know, in, in hindsight, you can always, you could say that you had a plan and you, these were the logical steps to take it, but mostly that's mm -hmm. only storytelling. And, and yeah. when, when you look at it in the right order of time, so not retrospectively, then it, it, it feels like, like randomness or stumbling into it. But at the same time, you must have been, you, you must have had very many different choices. Where you could where, where you could go uh, so very many different offers um very many different paths i mm. i don't want to go too deep into this area but when you think back what, were there any type of decision principles or how did you think about whether this even if it's a random chance whether you want to grab that chance or whether you want to pass on it yeah th that's 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 a great question and there are probably several points um where that that could have happened probably the, the main one was that as you can imagine you get to a certain point where i where and and i did where i felt like i might have to pick between this sort of um it was in the digital health space the sort of entre entrepreneurial um kind of uh part of my work you know part of a startup company versus the academic you know running a lab, getting grant funding to run studies and, and those kinds of things. And I, and I did. Initially, I picked the, the entrepreneurial side. I, I picked the startup. I left academia formally for about six months. And then just having spent more time as part of that company, I realized that 
there wasn't an, an alignment between my values and the values of of some of the people that I worked with or and and in and then goals as well and how we wanted to achieve those goals and that's just you know people are different and that's fine so I essentially quit the company and my former boss uh at the University of Washington said I'll make up a position for you you know will you come back um and I was I actually and, and I had somebody else somewhere else who said Hey, can I give you an interim position with like an academic line on your CV so it doesn't look like you formally left academia? Because that once you've left, it's hard to get back in. So I actually had a couple of people who made sure that I could come back uh, as an academic, even though I'd left um, briefly. And that was that was really a big decision point for me. And what's nice um, about my position, you're right. I, I love the work that I get to do and how varied it is and all the people that I get to interact with at, at different levels. And that's what's nice about academia in particular is that it's very flexible in terms of what you do, how you spend your time, what your outputs are. Um, and so that's that's really where I found my my home um, rather than, you know, sort of going full full bore into the startup world, the life of a professor is much more um, amenable to how I like to work. Um, so, this, so that was like one critical decision point where I like picked one, one particular path. If I may um, summarize a few key principles out of this, also in cross-referencing this with stories that I've heard from other people is what I, what I, have, what I have heard um, a few times in different words is that um, ultimately, yes, there, there's, there's chance and there's luck and, 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 and it's not really a plan and you decide in that situation what you want to do, but what, um, quote unquote, successful people, uh, often do is I have the feeling that one, they operate really from a values perspective. So always within this mind of you see yourself, you see each other twice in life. So treat people well, be fair and, and these kind of things. So that's one. Then two is you increase that pe these people try to operate uh, in a way that increases the surface area for for luck or opportunity. So look into different fields and to act with different people. If you have a decision that kind of where the two options are kind of similar, but the one vastly opens up potential for new areas that you that you don't know yet, you rather choose these things. And then thirdly, just have a rough idea of what your goals are in life. And then when these opportunities come, you can intuitively make decisions whether 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 they whether they fit these values and whether they fit your goals and 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 these kind of things. So it it it, it your story somehow resonated to to these learnings. Yeah, I I agree. I, I think that's um that's been a, a part of what I've been able to do so far in my career. I I think some people will will know know me to be very values driven and and sometimes to a detriment because I hold myself and other people to a very high standard which you know not not everybody enjoys interacting uh with with uh with people like that um but that's that's really kind of driven me but at the same time it's really important to just be kind and accept um accept conversations from anybody, talk to anybody, help anybody if you can, because you never know where that's going to lead you. And, and, a, and a lot of 
where I am today is just because I had a conversation, I listened, I tried to help if I could. Um, and then like really cool stuff can come from that. Yeah, and in the end, you feel better if you're if you're kind to other people, if even yeah. if there's no other benefit coming out of it. Yeah, absolutely. Did you did you have any real high and low so far in your career in your life story? You sent me this question in advance, and I was I was thinking about it, and it's it's really difficult to talk about that. I think in a meaningful way because everything at the time feels like a high and a low, but then when you look back. Like the decision point I talked about moving from like uh, startups back into academia, that felt like a real low point to me. But now it makes perfect sense and it was absolutely the right thing to do. Um, and then when you think about individual high points, they're all like relative to where you are at your stage. Like I think about first getting into university, like knowing that I was going to go to Cambridge, one of the best universities in the world. Like that's, that's a big high. Or, um, you know, more recently getting you know, it's very important as an academic to get grant funding to fund your lab so you can do the work that you want to do and keep your job. Um, so, you know, some recent highs getting some big, um, you know, big funding from from the government, which says, hey, we think your work is important. This is, you know, we really want you to start building a career. That's a big high. But it all of that feels very self-centered. So it's it's kind of difficult to to talk about it in in terms of big, uh, big highs and lows, because I think that just the overall pattern and, and trajectory is much more, much more important to me. And I'd like to think that whether there's a high or a low, I will take it on with equanimity and just realize that it's sort of part of a journey and you, you hopefully still end up in, in the right place. Is that, is that a good answer? I don't know. <laughs> it, it is a good answer. And I think it underlines this uh, and it, it underlines your, 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 I'd say mindset or mental model as of, you know, if there's a low, you can, you can gain something out of it. I mean, if, if, for example, if I would answer the question, I very clearly have a low couple of years back um, when, 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 when we did the first exit with a company, I was definitely in a burnout afterwards. I mm. felt very, yeah. very bad. So that was definitely a low, but what, it, what it, afterwards, what happened was I took a, um, I took a coach, you know, half, half psychologist, um, half business coach and, and, and worked through my life and worked through goals and priorities. And now I feel so much better because of that. So, um, I could say, I would still say that's a low, but yeah, you, you, you take your lows and, and learn something out of, uh, yeah. out of it. And I think on the highs without going now deeper into this, it's a lot also about this moving goalposts. You know, if if you um, if if you have fixed goals and and don't allow the goalpost to move um, every time you reach something, then it's much easier to really talk about a real high that you have or a real achievement. If you are on this ever uh, on this on this journey of you you set a goal, you reach something, you set the next goal, you reach something, you set the next goal, you reach something, but never really, um, I don't know whether being satisfied is the real reason, but never really. Uh, achieved a goal that is more to you than just the next yeah next quarter um quarter goal or anything like that um it, it I, feels like it's it i was just gonna say that it, feel, it feels like there's 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 often this mindset where of like i'll be happy when right when i achieve this thing when i do this thing and in reality that's never going to be the case, 
right? Because then as soon as you achieve that thing, then there's a new thing that you have to achieve in order to be happy. So tying your happiness to these highs, and these highs are fabulous. They should be celebrated. Um, and and I and I do celebrate them just as as you would, um, but they can't be tied to our sort of overall satisfaction and um, you know purpose in life because they're going to be continuously shifting. Right, wherever you are, there's some other thing to do next. Um, so I, so I think it's important to have highs and to acknowledge them and to celebrate them. But I don't think they you know as much as we can divest them from our identity and our and our purpose and our and our satisfaction in life or our happiness in life because otherwise you'll always be trying to achieve something and you'll and you'll never actually become satisfied as part in part of that process i've uh, i couldn't agree more i've heard somebody say i don't know who that was uh, i'm gonna steal that here uh if you're not happy drinking a cup of coffee you're not happy on a yacht Damn. <laughs> Well, I know that I'm very happy drinking coffee, and I'm not sure I've ever been on a yacht. So I think I'm, I think I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just speaks to if you're not really happy without these extrinsic factors. Yeah. Then even if you get those materialistic success signs deep within you, it's still going to be difficult. Well, <laughs> let's shift uh, gears and get into the topic of brain health. To start with, uh, how would you define brain health um how can you measure or can you measure the health of the brain and is there a connection or overlap to mental health there's there's basically two two or three ways to answer your question depending on who you are and where you are so if you wanted to know what brain health is for you and i believe it is completely individualized or what I want I want to know what brain health is for me in its simplest form it is that my brain allows me to do the things that I want to do at the level that I want to do them and that it keeps doing that for as long as I want to do those things and normally when I ask this question people are like but that's just such a super vague answer like how do I actually op operationalize that And that is part of the problem, um, is that what I want my brain to do is not the same as what you want your brain to do. So we can find ways to measure brain function. We can do MRI scans. We can do um, EEGs or electric scans of the brain. We can do standardized cognitive function tests. And those things are important from a research standpoint. But how your brain performs in a in a cognitive function test may be completely irrelevant to the things that you actually want your brain to do every day and be good at. So in reality, there's there's two different answers depending on am I looking at this from your perspective or am I looking at this from a research perspective? So when I'm looking at this from a research perspective and we're doing a study, say, to look at cognitive function and mental health in individuals in the military and we have an intervention and we want to track those things so we have a, a standardized battery of tests that are around emotional health emotional resilience cognitive function things like that like um and that could be include reaction time it include executive function so how well do you um like make the right choice uh, depending on a stimulus you get and all of this stuff can be tested and this is kind of how we estimate how the brain functions you know over time but 
that may that's that's probably quite impersonal to what you want your brain to do. So there's we kind of we do the best that we can with the research tools that we have. And when you publish a paper, you sort of aggregate all of those things across a group and you say, on average, this thing improved, or on average, this thing, you know, got worse. And we're getting better at saying, you know, here's the subgroup of people where this thing works and and gets this improvement. And here's a subgroup of people where that doesn't happen. So we're kind of getting better at understanding more nuanced data. But in reality, what you want is you want to feel good every day and you want your brain to function. So part of it is, do you have some idea of how you're performing at the things you want to perform at? And sometimes those things can be quantified. Sometimes it's a little bit more subjective than that. And I'm actually a big fan of subjective data because what we think actively drives our physiology and actively drives our biochemistry. So if you don't, so say if you expect to not feel good because of something, you will not feel good as a result because you thought it, you expected it, it will then happen. And that you can measure that bio, you can measure the biology changing. It's not all in your head. It's actually driving like responses throughout the entire body. So what you think drives your physiology. So that's 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 a big part of it. Um and it's directly tied to mental health. And that was that was sort of the last part of your question. Where I mean physical health and mental health are very intimately related. And part of what I would call brain health is that in yourself um, whether you measure that subjectively, um, like how do you feel today or objectively? And there are lots of questionnaires in terms of, you know, both mood and, and other, you know, depression, anxiety, um, parts of brain health is that you, you feel good both objectively and subjectively. And we know that those things are very closely linked. Is it always good to have better brain health i mean i know that you said that it's it it depends subjectively on what i want to achieve and you can definitely make a ton of cases where if you compare brain health with building muscle or something like that it's not always better to be str stronger but just the initial <laughs> reaction was that when we talk about the performance the health of, of my brain how i feel uh the first thing was is is Better always good. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a fantastic question, and, and there are, I can give you two specific examples where be better is not necessarily better. Um, so the first is the the brain, like like any tissue, like your muscle tissue, adapts to the specific um, the specific inputs we give it. Right. So there are studies where if you have individuals train very intensively on a specific task say a memorization task their brain gets really good at memorizing stuff but then gets less good at other things so you become hyper specialized it's like saying you become an elite marathon runner and then you're no longer good at deadlifts in the gym right you've just be you you would be a you're, you're no longer a good power lifter you because you've just become you've specialized for something and the, and the brain does do that That would be a definition of how you would define be becoming um, more healthy in, in your brain. or Because as with your example of being a marathon runner, you could say, I want to become a more complete athlete and always better in being a more complete athlete. 
Yeah, so that's that's possible too. And I think that's probably what most people want to focus on. What I meant, what I was going, where I was going was that you can have a specific part of the brain where the quote unquote health is is improved or increased because you've focused your resources and time on improving the function and structure of that part of the brain. And you can measure you can measure that and you can see the 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 structure has changed, the the function has improved. But in order to do that, just like if you're becoming an elite marathon runner, you may have you may become less good at other things. And for for some people, say that that may not be optimal, right? You become really good at one thing, but actually that makes you less good at some other things that you want to be good at. So so if you you can kind of hyper specialize, and that's not always that's not always uh, the 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 optimal outcome. Then the other thing, um, and is probably more related to mental health, is that. Some of these coordinated responses that we have to common things that happen to us are protective and adaptive in, in a certain way. So if you experience some kind of illness, we know what it feels like to be sick. You kind of feel withdrawn. You feel, um, you know, often depressed or anxious or sleepy, fatigued. And that's part of this coordinated response in the body. And that can be protective in some way because right right at that moment you are not in a good position to go out into the world and socially interact so you feel less you know like you want to interact socially so there's this even that you may not feel good during that period of time but that's part of an adaptive response as the body heals so sometimes these things are useful and there are sort of broader implications of this particularly related to how we interact with others, which show that when you're socially isolated, as an example, your entire immune system changes. And it does that because it your body recognizes that you are ex now going to be exposed to different um, different hazards. So when you're in a group, there is there's one sets of one set of things that that you're likely to be exposed to. So if you're in a big group, you're likely to get exposed to lots of like viral infections. So your immune system becomes sort of set up to do that. When you're isolated, you're not going to be exposed to viral infections because there's nobody else around to infect you. So then you're you're more likely to um, get some kind of wound, you know, like cut yourself or something, and then you need to be good at dealing with that kind of thing. And so your your body shifts its immune system such that you respond better, you get better wound healing, but you're less good at dealing with viruses. This is your body adapting to the environment around it, and you will feel different because of that. Um, and the sort of the broader implications is that in modern society, when we interact with other other people in different ways or don't interact with other people in, in other ways it affects both how we feel cognitively and how our body works as a whole so sometimes even though you may not feel as good and if i if i use feeling good as a, as a, as a metric of brain health that may be a normal adaptive response to the environment that you find yourself in and actually, that's a good thing for, to, to be happening at that moment in time so that was like another example of if it makes sense, like where more is not necessarily better. And it also makes sense that sometimes this, if you, if you don't feel good, it's a, it's a, it's a signal, um, for, for you to take, 
to to be aware of of something and potentially work against it, also potentially not work against it. What what is the how does it work when I look at intelligence? So when 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 we talk about brain health and look at this fuzzy concept of intelligence, let's say IQ test. I don't know whether that's a good proxy for intelligence, but what I want to get at is um, when you work and care about your brain health, is there a way to increase your potential for being intelligent? Or um, if at all, um, does this rather help you to lift the potential that you have within your head for, for intelligence? Your, your first question is, is one that's kind of uh, rife with a long and sordid history, which is the, the history of, of IQ tests, which since their development have been racist, sexist, been used to segregate people, um, and were initially um, invented to prove the superior su superiority of, of one group of individuals, even though that's, that's of course not true. Um, so there is a problem with IQ tests because inherently they're designed to um, show uh, better performance from people who've had better training in, in, in the past. So you, if you have better education, you have a better social environment, you have a higher socioeconomic status, you automatically will do better in IQ tests. So there's kind of this inherent inequity that's baked into those tests, unfortunately. Um, and part of that um, is due to the fact that we don't really know what intelligence is. Some, right, what, it, what is it? Like, in, in especially how does it apply to different fields? How does it apply to different aspects of brain function? So you can get really into the, the ethical and philosophical weeds about, well, how do I measure intelligence? First, I have to decide what intelligence is and, you know, what's specific to, to what group or what performance target and do we even know what we should be measuring? So if we put that as aside a little, a little bit, um, I think the, yes, we can measure, like, like I was saying earlier, we can measure standardized cognitive performance. Um, we know that, so I mentioned education is one of the best predictors of, stand, of performance in standardized tests. Um, and that holds true pretty much across the board. And there's probably a couple of reasons for this. One is that as part of a formal education process, you become better at performing in the kinds of tests that you get asked to do because they're kind of related. Um, but then the other part is that as you challenge your brain through the process of active learning, you've created this greater potential for brain function. And so I, I think that's where your question really lies. Um, and that's where I think the answer also lies. So if you expose your brain to a wide range of challenging tasks, you increase its capacity to perform across a broad range of um, you know, related fields. And I, I think that's kind of what we might think of as intelligence outside of a standardized test. So then the best way to do that is to undergo these periods of intense active learning. And where we see 
the evidence kind of come together across lots of different broad fields is that there are these specific types of tasks and skill learning that, that really seem to benefit multiple aspects of brain function. And they're kind of the things that make us inherently human. It's like languages, music, uh, say motor uh, skills, you know, complex motor skills, particularly those that, that are like reactionary. So uh, ball sports and anything that requires a lot of uh, balance or motor coordination. These are the kinds of uh, inputs that if we're exposed to them throughout the lifespan, they seem to broaden our capacity uh, for cognitive function. So that's kind of where the answer lies, uh, I believe. And how you, how you test that again, I, I, I think it should be more personalized. You know, you want to be, you want to be good at the things that you want to be good at, but there's still this core uh, basis of skill learning that seems to to drive a lot of that and f but, uh, your your comment earlier about you know having a lot of paths open and trying a lot of different things i think that's a that's a big part of this and there's a very nice book by david epstein called range have you read it or you, have no. you heard of it and but he basically talks about how um very high performers across a range of fields, but he uses he he does talk a lot about sports because he's he's an he's an expert in sort of like the history of sports. Um, the the best athletes usually tried a lot of sports throughout their throughout their childhood, and they specialized fairly late. So even if if you compared standardized performance when they were kids, right? So you know, imagine you're a tennis player. If you're also spending time playing football and badminton and skateboarding, you have less time to spend playing tennis. So when you're playing your junior championship at 16 years old, you may not be the best tennis player. But then you fast forward 10 years and you become the best tennis player in part because of this range of other skills that you learned during your development. So I guess that's another part of your question I didn't mean to answer, which is that like, when are you testing performance in something? Because it could be that um, a, a broader range of experience early on means that you don't specialize as well at a given point, but eventually that comes into fruition later on. So that again, sort of speaks to potential rather than, you know, how are you performing right now? Uh, I'm gonna save a lot of what you have said about what generally helps with um clinical brain health intellectual stimulus you know exercise for later parts of the discussion because we're going to deep dive there and want to comment on what you mentioned in the end um starting with that hook around david epstein's book uh, range um it's interesting there's also um a concept in in the in the business or in the entrepreneurial world that goes into the in, into a similar direction that says um it is not only much more difficult to be the best in a very narrow field, it's much easier to be the only one by combining different expertises or different experiences. And also in a world where uh, increasingly information, AI, all of these kind of things are available, it is much more, more difficult to compete with extreme specialization um, and it's more in that theory, more valuable to compete. And also you create more value by combining 
different expertises that you have. And that's that that's sort of close to what you mentioned. If you try out different sports in tennis, you'll learn this in, in, in soccer or football, you will learn that. And when you then specialize in one thing, you can, even though you specialize, you take that potential, what you've learned throughout these different experiences and apply them in your field of, of, of then special specialization. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And that's why I think it's important for people to have hobbies, to have other things that they're interested in, because you never know when something completely unrelated from a completely unrelated field then gives you an edge or gives you a new perspective into you know, your work life or or something else that then helps you you know overcome a hurdle or unlock a door to kind of get to the next step before we deep dive into how to keep and improve brain health let's talk a little bit more about you know a brain that is unhealthy so first question is do you actually say a brain is unhealthy or is it more like a relative range where say it it it, it it's more healthy or works better or works you know not not so good is there anything that you really consider unhealthy and and what happens physiologically in in a brain when you say it's it's less healthy yeah that that that's a great question and and i it's difficult to to say this is well, I mean, I'm, there are there are plenty of scenarios where you could say this is an, an an unhealthy brain, and that's usually in the setting of some kind of formal disease process, right? If you if you have diagnosed dementia, I don't think it is um, unexpected to say that that is an unhealthy brain. Um, what may constitute that, and to to get there, there is obviously this ongoing period of decline until you get to an arbitrary cutoff where they give you a diagnosis right it's just like dementia doesn't suddenly happen it's a it's there's a a, a period of potentially decades over which the capacity of the brain decreases such that your capacity then becomes lower than what you need your brain to be able to do right we talked about a healthy brain being one that does what you need it to do Eventually, once you're, the capacity of your brain is less than what you need it to be able to do, that is essentially um, either cognitive impairment or decline, depending on how severe, you know, how severe the deficit is. So that's a that's an unhealthy brain, and what is happening in that process is probably also dependent on an individual's. Uh, risk factors and exposures and and lifestyle largely but the core process is that something related to the function of the brain or something that's needed to maintain the function of the brain is missing and that could be many things and sometimes these uh, factors interact so you know the the fact that two things are missing is like triply worse because like they there's some there's some um buffer in the system but if you miss both then that drives a more rapid decline and that's the case for some nutrients um for the brain so within there you might say you know how well is the brain processing energy or taking up energy how well is the brain supplying um nutrients or oxygen or fuel um that's an important part how well 
is the brain um, adapting to challenges? You know, how you know are you giving it time, opportunity to rest and recover where you know sleep is particularly pr critical, or are you exposing the brain to some uh, quote unquote toxin like a large amount of alcohol, smoking, air pollution is important. Um, are you even challenging your brain and telling your brain, hey, you still need to do something? Um, and that's a big part of this, this idea of, of stimulus being, being really important because like any tissue, if you stop using your brain, its function will automatically decline because it's an, it's an expense it's energetically expensive to keep your brain around. So if you build up a whole bunch of muscle lifting in the gym, and then you just stop lifting and you sit around all day, you're going to lose that muscle tissue because you don't need it anymore. And in many respects, the brain is the same. So when you think about an unhealthy brain we might be able to measure certain things we can see it shrink on a brain scan we might be able to measure certain proteins that may or may not be important in terms of the like the pathology of that uh, brain dysfunction but the things driving that may be very different from person to person and i think one of the reasons why we've really struggled to tackle alzheimer's disease um, is that we assume that there's one core process that we can change with a drug or something like that. And I don't think that that's the case. I think that the end result looks very similar, but the paths into that end result are very different from person to person. So we really need to address what's the issues with you that, that we can improve um, in order to change that trajectory. If we if we exclude the more already um, progressed cases or extreme cases of of bad brain health like dementia and Alzheimer's, do I feel if I am rather on the lower end of brain health? I mean, I do understand that after a night of bad sleep, after drinking alcohol, all of these kind of things, yes, I do feel it because I have that benchmark. Okay, of yesterday or the day before, it felt very differently, but. Other than that, am I aware of that? Or um, is this one of the cases where there's this a world of potential that what what I could what I could do, but as I've never felt it and is as and as I don't have that direct comparison, I'm I I I I can't really emotionally grasp that uh, concept. This is actually a very controversial question and a very important one. Uh, and if you ask different people in this arena, you'll get different answers. So I believe that before you have some kind of diagnosable cognitive impairment, and we haven't talked about this, this trajectory too formally, but it essentially you have some period over which the health of your brain is declining, but you can't diagnose it it's not bad enough that i can give you a diagnosis at some point the the function declines so you get into this period that we call mild cognitive impairment where you're you perform bad enough on some standardized tests that we can say yes this is mild cognitive impairment and then eventually your your uh, cognitive function declines even further and you get diagnosed with dementia that period that early period of decline some people call subjective cognitive impairment, or at least some part of it is something that you can subjectively understand. When you try and test people who, who say that they have decreases in cognitive function, you might not be able to pick up 
something formally on standardized tests. Um, and so there's this discrepancy between what do you feel and what can I actually detect if I do some kind of formal test? I believe that that subjective um, trajectory is real because only you know what you were previously capable of that you are no longer capable of. Um, and that's very hard to build into a test. So one of the problems with standardized cognitive function tests is, so say you do an IQ test. An IQ test, um, the average score is 100, and there's some standard deviation, So it, it, and it's usually like 15. So the, normal the, the majority of the normal population will have a score anywhere from 60 to 140. Uh, no, sorry, 70 to 130. So within that range, that's just normal. You could be anywhere in, in, that, in that range. And then if you had an IQ, if you happen to have an IQ of 180, which is pretty extreme, maybe 160, right? You're already so far outside of the normal range. You're going to have to lose a lot of function before that even gets picked up. Because you could, you could lose 20% of your function and still be well above average, right? So that's where I think there's this discrepancy between what we can measure and what you know to be true about yourself. So then the question becomes, what happens when you notice something? So say you'll often hear people be like, I just can't remember things quite the same. You know, I used to have this information like ready to go. And now it's sort of like, I know it's there, but I can't quite reach for it. It's like, it's on the tip of my tongue, but I can't remember it. Or, you know, they're forgetting where their keys are or, you know, just something that they thought that they could do previously very well, they can no longer do well. Usually there are two responses. The first one might be, hey, that's probably this uh, a suggestion that, that something has changed. Let me think about what I can do to try and improve that or prevent that from getting any worse. You know, can I look at my lifestyle, these other factors? Is there anything, you know, is it sleep? Is it stress? Uh, and often it's, it's stress related or sleep, sleep related early on. However, that's a very uncommon response. The more common response is, well, I'm just getting old. So my brain won't function as well as it used to because I'm old. And this is what happens when you get old. Um, and I think that's the real problem. Because when that happens, what you're doing is you're saying, well, my function has decreased. So what I should do is I should expect less of my brain. And when you expect less, you do less. And it's this like feed forward cycle. So my uh, recommendation is that if you notice those things, do an inventory of what might have changed, what you might need to be able to do to improve, and to not give your, like, don't let yourself off the hook. Like, if you're doing less with your brain, the response is to do more, and then you will get more function in return. It's like saying, well, I'm getting weaker, so I'm just going to stop going to the gym because I'm not as strong as I used to be. And that stopping going to the gym is the thing that's going to make you much weaker, right? That, that's, that's going to trigger that, that decline. And the, brain, and the brain is the same. So to kind of summarize that very long answer, um, yes, I, I think there is 
some period of time where your function declines. And some of that is going to be subjective. It's going to be known only to you. Um, or it's going to be noticed by people who know you very well um, and, 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 and you know, love you and, and know how, how you would normally perform. And actually, those are probably two different paths. Um, the, the type of um, change that you notice yourself and you can you know, actively change, those things are easily reversible. And I think you can, you can have a big impact early on. If you're not noticing changes, but a loved one is, that's usually a more sort of pathological path that's maybe going to lead you to, to dementia um, sooner because there are, there are different processes involved in which part of brain function is being affected. Um, and that second one is harder to deal with because if you don't notice it, unless you have somebody else who notices it and makes you make changes or intervenes on your behalf to sort of, you know, change that trajectory, that, that's just, it's just harder to, to get into that one. Because if you don't notice something and you don't care about it yourself, it's, it's much harder to make lifestyle changes. And there's a, there's a whole sort of group of p people who are working very hard to try and improve the brain health of their loved ones. But it's a really difficult process if their loved one, who's the person being affected, is not engaged in that process. And that, that's something that we still have to try and figure out the best way to, to kind of navigate that process. So if I understood you correctly, um, if, if I am aware that there might be some sort of a cognitive decline, and especially if I attribute that to age, I should double check and see what has changed in my life. For example, I went in retirement and now the mental stimulus that I had during work um, is is missing, and because of that, there might be you know less training of of my my brain, and my brain gets more sedentary. Um, mm. If I'm not aware of that of of um, a cognitive decline, but somebody else notices it, this might be a whole different um, beast to tackle. Yeah. How how does um, brain health generally develop while we're aging? So, at what point of time is it? normal or probably right to assume that some cognitive functionality will be declined? On average, brain function, you know, as measured by all the standardized tests that we can think to do, peaks in each individual right around the time that they finish formal education and the brain finishes developing, which is usually in the late teens or early 20s. Oh no, that's already quite a time ago. <laughs> After that, it's just down, downhill. Um, and, but in reality, and, and, and when I say that, I mean at a population level on average. I don't believe that needs to be the case. Um, of course, we can't stop the aging process right now. And I don't think we're going to be able to do that anytime soon. We can slow it, certainly, but nothing's going to stop your brain function declining entirely, just like nothing's going to stop you ever dying. Um, so then I think the, the real question is, how do we change that trajectory such that the slope is as shallow as, as possible? Because in reality, you want to get to death with your brain still being capable of doing all the things that you want to do, right? And so are you still, even though compared to when you were 25, when you're 95, your brain is probably not as functional, you know, uh, as it was. 
but you but there's still no deficit in terms of being able to do the things that you want to do uh every day so the thing that i think is most interesting from that from the trajectory of brain health across the lifespan that sort of like increases yeah, uh, you know, when we're kids, and then it peaks in our early adulthood, and then declines from there. Is it does track generally with how much we're stimulating our brains. So, up until your early twenties, in general, or late teens, depending on where you are and what education you did, your job is to learn. That's basically all you're supposed to do, right? First, you learn to walk and talk, um, and social interaction, and then you learn maths and language and then you learn biochemistry or engineering um or art or history and you learn and then you sleep um and your brain adapts and responds and gets better at uh, better at doing the things that you're, you're learning when you leave formal education your job is then to specialize and get better and better at one specific thing that you do again and again every day. And we've already talked about how if you really specialize in one thing, other functions of the brain can decline because we're no longer using them. And sometimes that's really important. If I want a surgeon to operate on my brain, I really want them to be hyper specialized, like they shouldn't have to think through every step. It's it's automatic. You know, it's almost like rea you know, reactionary. It's just like hap happening on autopilot. That's what I want. And so it's really important in your job to specialize. So then the challenge becomes outside of work, continuing to build skills and learn things and challenge yourself. And then I think that's the primary or one of the primary drivers of a shallow decline in cognitive function. So it could be um, sport related, it could be socially related in terms of how you interact with others. It could be language related. Um, but continuing to actively work on things that you're bad at, and getting better at them over time, is that kind of broad stimulus that's really important. And then with that, you need to provide all the all the right tools for the brain to adapt and respond. So sleep and nutrition and and all those kinds of things that are really important but i think that's how i understand the core process of slowing the decline of, of brain function across the lifespan so did i understand that correctly that when when you said that hey on average you, you know brain health functionality peaks you know late teens early 20s Yes, there might be an actual physiological component to that, like some aging component, but a big part of that is also the lifestyle. Exactly what you explained that at that time, I'm giving my brain likely the maximum of new stimuli uh, in my in my life. And, and therefore, a big part could also be that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that's one of the, when you look at education level, and so early life education is one of the most protective factors against later dementia risk. And part of it is socioeconomic. Um, and, but then part of it is also, if we, if we think about this increase in brain function, you know, like your, your, your x-axis sort of along the bottom is time, and your y-axis on the side is cognitive function. The more time you spend in formal education, the more time you have to drive that line up, right? So the peak happens later 
and it's higher. So if you're going to have some decrease over time, the higher your starting point and the later that happens, the better in terms of delaying cognitive decline. So then you would just say that when you leave school or you leave university, you can keep pushing that up as long as you keep providing these broad range of stimuli to the brain. And at some point, that curve is going to turn and it's going to decrease. But the slope is going to be proportional to how much you're using your brain. So how much you, how much time are you spending actively learning? How much are you spent like, time spending really challenging your brain? And then that's going to be a, a, a critically important point. I think this is a very great point to move into how to keep and improve brain health. You have underlined already uh, certain factors quite quite often. Let me ask one more question before we do that, and it's it's a twofold, um, it's it's a two part question. Um, the first part is how has brain health developed on average in our society over the past fifty years? I would assume that there are factors that supported it others that 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 were bad for brain health um and i know there's a very big asterisk to this question the second part of the question because you have talked um extensively about we need to look at the people on an individual level and it all and brain health is always also a function of what you want to get out of your brain but when we think about your average potential to improve your brain health let's say without focusing your whole life on improving your brain health you know not not make that the mission of your life but how much is there within me we've talked about that you know i maybe i feel over time that there's certain things that yeah i can't remember the stuff and 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 so on yada 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 but like is there any way to speak about the average improvement potential that i could get with reasonable effort let's say i'm 30 or 35 and i haven't been living terrible but also likely not you know living in a way that 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 optimizes brain health um playbook um textbook stuff so your your first question um, how has brain health changed in the last 50 or so years? I think yeah. in in general, it has improved. And there's a number of reasons for that. One is that uh, education has become more broadly accessible, not to everybody, but you know, across countries, um, more people are going to school and they're staying in school for longer. And we know that's a critical determinant. Then... There are also some studies that suggest that our given, so at a given age, we are actually at a lower risk of dementia than we were maybe 10 or 20 years ago. That doesn't mean that we're not at a, a higher risk overall, and we are still at a higher risk overall because we're living longer. So even though, at, say, at 70 years old, your likelihood that you'll have dementia is lower than maybe it was 10 or 20 years ago, your risk of dementia ever is still increasing because you're probably going to live longer than you would have done 10 or 20 years ago. The benefit that we've gotten so far is probably due to a few things like um, a real focus on cardiovascular disease risk, uh, risk factors, you know, treating people who have uh, very high cholesterol or diabetes, uh, you're focusing on those uh, blood pressure those things seem to have had a benefit. And then there was also probably a benefit from the fortification of some foods, so like putting folic acid 
um, into uh, like wheat products. Um, B vitamins are a really important part of long-term brain health. And we, we seem to have made a bit of a shift there as well with, by fortifying um, some, some low nutrient foods that lots of people eat. So there, there have been some benefits over time. There are other things that maybe come into play more recently that you might have questions about, like novel uh, stimuli, um, like computer games or the effect of social media. Um, and I think those are probably a little bit more nuanced. Um, but there's certainly some data to suggest that things like computer games can enhance brain function because it's a new skill, it's a new stimulus. Um, people who who play video games often have better working memory they have better executive function because these are things that you're often testing in sort of more complex video games so these novel stimuli even though we often like feel like they're probably bad for us aren't necessarily bad for us um and, it, and it's more of a case of how much time are you spending doing it and are you doing it to the detriment of other things that are important so are you spending 16 hours a day playing video games which means that you're not sleeping you're not exercising you're not eating properly you're not socially interacting with other people then that's probably uh, a net negative um and then things like social media again will depend on how you respond to the comparison to others and that goes all the way back to what i was saying earlier about that effect of social isolation on our physiology, um, a sa the same thing happens when we feel ourselves are demoted within a social group. So if, if you feel like you are socially disadvantaged, and that can be driven by social media just, it, just as it can be driven by, you know, having a, a group of friends who aren't very nice to you, that can then drive inflammation and some of these negative responses. So some of these things can be beneficial, just like you can find a social group of people who support you online, just like it can be a negative where you can feel sort of like socially threatened because of what you what you're exposed to on social media. So those those things are again going to be very different depending on your experience. Um, so I, I think that's kind of the summary is that in general, I feel brain health is probably improving, but because we're living a longer and longer time, our brains are still at risk of at some point, you know, reaching a, a level of function that's, that's, that's holding us back um, in, in some way. Um, and then what was the second part of your question? Whether there's any way with a, many asterisks to say, hey, they're on average, if you're 30, 35, living a normal life, how much more potential is there to get out of my brain? I think I'm afraid I have to give you a philosophical response to that that question as well, because in reality we don't we don't know the answer. Um, most of the things that I've talked about today have come from observational research, which basically means that we just track tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people and we look at the effects of, say, education on average on later dementia risk. So then you could estimate, well, what would be the effect of everybody getting this many years extra education and we can calculate that and it's it's probably quite significant but we don't know if that's really true because nobody's tested that uh, in in a, in a formal setting so the 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 main thing that i would i would recommend people think about is just unhitching 
some of these things that we tell ourselves about our brains. And it's very common. And I do it myself. Like, I'm not going to pretend that, that I'm immune to this, where you're just like, do you know what? I'm just not good at that. Or I can't do that. Or I'm never going to be able to do that. Or I'm just not smart enough to do that. Um, I would urge people to not or avoid that kind of language as much as, much as possible. So it's not that if you're 30 and you do this, you can get X percent improvement in brain function. And, and you can calculate these things. Like in, in general, if you did all the things that I recommended in, in order to um, dramatically improve your brain health, the, the best sort of statistical analyses would suggest that maybe 70 or 80% even of people would no longer get dementia, right? That's a, there's a big chunk. The vast majority of dementia is probably completely uh, avoidable and preventable. What that means in terms of like absolute percentage of brain function is much trickier to, to estimate. But the important thing is not to hold yourself back because if you assume that you can't do something, that's your first step to ensuring that you'll never be able to do it. So I would just, the, the thing that I want people to know is that they can expect a huge amount from their brains and the brain is incredibly adaptable. It's incredibly capable. You just have to give it the environment that allows it to do that and challenge it uh, appropriately. So that's my slightly non-satisfactory answer to, to your question. But I think that's what's really, that, in my mind, that's the important takeaway. I, I think that's even a, a much better in a sense, more inspirational, more motivating answer, because other than, yeah, I could do things 10% better or, or however you want to define better is um, what, what you're saying is tr trust yourself to do completely new things that you mm. thought that you would not be able to do. So it's, it's a much more, much more in the direction of expanding my horizon and my core skill set or what I'm capable of doing rather than being a little bit better at certain things. So I find that a very yeah. Uh, a very um, <laughs> inspiring answer. Okay, great. Thank you for listening to the show. I would love to get your comments, suggestions, and feedback. Also, if there's a special topic you would like me to address or someone specific you'd love to see on the show. If you want to support me, please hit the subscribe button and leave me a rating. I hope you will listen in again on the next show. Until then, all the best.